evil. It can be a hard word to say because it points toward deep pain and suffering. Some may be thinking, must we consider this now? It might ruin our Sunday morning. I come to church for refuge and peace. Aren't we better off focusing our attention on the positive? Yet, instinctively, don't we all know that if we avoid looking at evil, we're likely to unwittingly participate in its wicked and immoral snare? This summer, a group at the church has been exploring in depth the history of the idea because its meaning has evolved over the centuries. I'm not planning to retrace these roots. Instead, today, I'm in search of a definition of evil that figuratively fits in the back pocket of my jeans or hangs on my keychain. I want a handy insight into a source of evil so I can have a ready tool when faced with a decision or with having to analyze a situation. Intuition tells me that we're likely to agree on major events that are evil. For example, Hitler and his extraordinarily aggressive totalitarian Nazi machinery that tortured and killed at least 11 million people, the majority Jewish. That's easy to label evil. That Holocaust was a genocide intended to destroy specific national, ethnic, racial, and religious groups, which is how the International Alliance to End Genocide and the Genocide Watch define this particular form of evil. Genocide Watch publishes an annual list of countries to monitor. It describes eight increasing levels in a progression toward genocide. From the initial stage one, where a clear, broad, simplistic classification system of us versus them becomes entrenched, to the two final stages seven and eight, where extermination is always followed by denial. The list of countries they currently consider to be in stage seven, the active extermination stage, will be very familiar from news reports. Syria, Sudan, Democratic Republic of Congo, Ethiopia, and Burma, Myanmar. Their summary descriptions are extremely distressing. Quote, the UN Human Rights Office estimates the death toll to be greater than 60,000 people in Syria. In Sudan, the Janjaweed attack towns, villages, and refugee camps kill the men and boys, rape the women and girls, and poison the wells. Burma Southeast Asia's most depressed nation remains under the 43-year tyranny of a military junta and should be a grave concern to the international community. Abuse of ethnic minorities, mass rape of women, mandatory relocations, extrajudicial state executions, military recruitment of children, and forced labor 
are only a few of the many violations of human rights currently practiced in the resource-rich but economically impoverished nations. These descriptions make me feel helpless and hopeless. Can we pause for just a moment to catch a breath and share a small act of love to remember and to wish for this evil to stop before we go on? Our hearts ache because of genocide caused by the lust for power, cruel hatred of others because of their race, religion, or physical differences. We cry in shame, but love is our spirit. May each breath we take and step we make serve to diminish and end this ruthless, unnecessary suffering. We're considering this issue of genocide because genocides and other mass murders killed more people in the 20th century than all wars combined, never again turned into again and again and again. What we have to combat this evil is today and ourselves. Can we consider using Genocide Watch's stage one description, the earliest manifestation as a useful guide for bringing this evil down to a manageable size so we can localize our search for it within our communities and ourselves. In the process, we might establish one handy definition of evil. To begin, here's how Genocide Watch describes that development of genocide. Genocide is a process that develops in eight stages that are predictable but not inexorable, at each stage, preventative measures can stop it. The process is not linear. Logically, the later stages must be preceded by earlier stages, but all stages continue to operate throughout the process. So stage one is classification. All cultures have categories to distinguish people into us and them by ethnicity, race, religion, or nationality, German and Jew, Hutu and Tutsi. But bipolar societies that lack mixed categories, such as Rwanda and Burundi, are the most likely to have genocide. The main preventative measure at this early stage is to develop universal institutions that transcend ethnic or racial divisions, that actively promote tolerance and understanding, and that promote classifications that transcend divisions. Now, I'm still quoting Genocide Watch, and they comment, the Catholic Church could have played this role in Rwanda had it not been riven by the same ethnic cleavages as Rwandan society. Promotion of a common language in countries like Tanzania has also promoted transcendent national identities. 
This search for common ground is vital to early prevention of genocide. End of quote. So many words and phrases from this betrayal of stage one suggest values and actions to interrupt early on this evil. And it uses such phrases as transcend divisions, actively promote tolerance and understanding, and search for common ground. They remind me of our stated intentions for being a Unitarian Universalist church. We put on the main page of our website that whoever you are, wherever you come from, whomever you love, you are welcome here, and we mean it. The covenant we say together each Sunday describes our noble intentions of love and service, peace and truth, and we mean it. Yet, the genocide watches caution that the Catholic Church had a gaping blind spot, allowing the Rwandan national divisions to also flourish within the church structure, should be a forceful warning to us before we pat ourselves on the back too quickly for not harboring any similar destructive classifications. We might regularly investigate if we are harboring any us-versus-them viewpoints. How are we a reflection of simplistic, harmful classifications and prejudices that might be prevalent in South Tulsa or the state of Oklahoma or the United States? We could easily list opposing groups that seem to divide us. Democrat or Republican, liberal or conservative, gun owner or not, elderly or young, technologically savvy or old school. I bet you have some. Shout them out. So what I want us to consider is how do we as a church and as an affiliation of churches find our current blind spots? So one idea to consider that can serve as an early evil detector, no matter the person or situation before you, is to prompt yourself with the idea that you could be wrong. This phrase taps into the essential spiritual principle of humility. It interrupts how our culture values certainty. We are rewarded for being right early in our upbringing and in schooling. Doubt is not seen as an asset, but quick sureness is. Humility is an ancient spiritual goal at the core of an understanding that humanity is not all-powerful. Often today, humility can lapse into skepticism and cynicism, but its healthy expression is a foundation for both science and religion. Every step in the scientific method requires testing over and over again to determine if the results could be wrong. And the same is true in spiritual development. We might think proudly, I come to church every week, so I'm good. Or, 
I can tell I'm reaching great emotional religious maturity. But you could be wrong. That could be your ego and pride talking. I facilitated several different groups recently that read and discussed the book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. And it is a book that asks its readers to consider, you could be wrong. Its author, Michelle Alexander, is an attorney who is a civil rights advocate and litigator. Some of you may have read it. She asserts that crime-fighting policies and systems in the U.S., such as the war on drugs and the incarceration, incarceration system, disproportionately and intentionally affect Americans of color. This book, more than any other recently, showed me how social systems that claim to be helpful and colorblind actually produce the opposite results. Our earlier reading from the interview with ex-felon and now research fellow Eddie Ellis is an experienced insider who comes to the same conclusions as Alexander. Two salient facts sum up Alexander's and Ellis's well-documented cases. First, despite television news images People of, people of all races, all races use and sell illegal drugs at remarkably similar rates. If there are significant differences in the surveys to be found, they frequently suggest that whites, particularly white youth, are more likely to engage in illegal drug use than people of color. If I were mean and not new, I could ask for a show of hands of everyone in the room who has used illegal drugs to prove this point, but I won't. The second telling fact is that despite the fact that the majority of illegal drug users and dealers nationwide are white, three-fourths, 75% of all people imprisoned drug offenses have been black or Latino. As with so many of my half-informed opinions in this area of drugs, crimes, and prisons, I've had to say to myself many times and now over and over again, you could be wrong. Let me read what evolutionary biologist Joseph Gray says eloquently about race as an unreliable us versus them category. The traditional concept of race is a biological as a biological fact is a myth. All of America's racist thinkers have relied on three unchallenged assumptions. That races exist first, that each race has its own genetically determined characteristics, Two, and crucially, that social hierarchy results from these differences. Cultural rather than biological traits were used to define our races. 
the rules of cultural evolution differ from those of biological evolution, but sadly, scientists, doctors, philosophers, and lawmakers have, for the most part, not yet acknowledged the difference. We must stop masking the real social issues with racist ideologies in order to build a truly just society. End quote. Hence, race is a biological and physical, as biological and physical groups for, for determining drug use and criminality are defective. Innumerable social systems, despite what they claim, still rely on and reinforce this prejudice. This intersection of how we categorize people and our unquestioned certainty is a critical place to look for evil and its early seeds. As human beings... We are constituted by our connections to the people in the world around us. And when we make assumptions about those connections, when we forget we could be wrong, then we can easily act in ways that intentionally or unintentionally harm others. We are capable of creating whole social systems that uphold erroneous us versus them categories. Our blind spots can be very hard to see on both a national level to the most personal one. As I said earlier, all we have to, all we have to expose any false categorization, as I said earlier, all we have to expose any false groupings <laughs> is today and ourselves. So try this today. Imagine, before you pass judgment or critique another's actions, you say to yourself, you could be wrong. What if in all personal relationships and church community connections you reflexively consider you could be wrong? So one way to strengthen this humility and intercept our prejudices is to play a game of imagination. For example, say someone cuts you off in busy traffic. Your first reaction might be expletives I won't say from this pulpit and an immediate judgment that the driver is crazy, out to get you, and a menace. Now comes the game part, and I really want you all to participate. See how many legitimate or even silly reasons you can list about why that person was driving that way. And I'll get you started. The driver just got news his son is dying in the hospital. How about his gas pedal is stuck and his brakes aren't working? He threw away his winning lottery ticket, and the trash truck usually comes right about now. (laughs) Here's an impossible one. The driver is chasing a rainbow and racing to make it to the pot of gold. Okay, your turn. 
You shout out some imaginings of why that person cut you off. Oh, his girlfriend just broke up with him. Oh, his wife is having a baby in the back seat. Hurry! First time driving since surgery. Say that again. First time driving since surgery. First time driving. Thank you. Couldn't hear it all. Say that again. I think this has happened to you all, huh? So whether our reasons are true or not, they soften our hearts. Could you feel your own tension and fury dissolve a bit as we created that list? The imagination exercise makes room for other possibilities besides our own dogged rightness and rigidity. The game makes space for, you could be wrong. We tend to take other people's actions so personally and use our resulting judgments, categories, and lingering prejudices to justify our actions. That person cut me off, so I'll show her I'm not a wimp to be messed with. Next thing you know, you're speeding and racing too or bearing down on your horn more than necessary to make your point. Or if it's category one by category seven, you want to exterminate that driver. (laughs) So try this game in other situations. Try it silently when someone says something hurtful. Play it when you're arguing with a child, puzzled during a family dinner, baffled during a church committee meeting, or dumbstruck by a partner or spouse. So, as my constant reminder about what constitutes evil the plastic tag on my keychain, and the laminated card in my back pocket says, you could be wrong. You can have one too. (laughs) May it be so. So while you're collecting, we also collect for the, uh, the Iron Gate this month, whose primary mission is disrupting hunger, 